there. But yeah, definitely open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, and that's where we'll be this morning to examine an important, a crucial passage there. True or false? True or false? The Christian life is easy. Wow, okay, overwhelming response of false. I was going to say true, but okay. Um, I met a staff person at the camp this past week, and this person had an extremely tough childhood, adopted um, as a baby, and grew up in um, a Jewish home with Jewish parents, but faced lots of emotional abuse. Her brother faced physical abuse, um, and even up to this day as an adult, they still try to control her circumstances. Uh, so she uh, gave her a testimony, and one very interesting part of her testimony was that as she became a believer, she had people discipling her and doing Bible studies with her. She started to come across passages that talked about the difficulty of the Christian life. And that was actually, believe it or not, that was a surprise to her. She thought, wow, how could anything be harder than what I've gone through already? And that was a legitimate response. But, as we've answered, the Christian life is not easy. It's not easy. Why does the Christian life seem so difficult? Why does it seem so difficult? Sometimes we can't quite get our hands around it. Sometimes we just, it just seems hard. We don't have ways to explain it. It's hard because the Christian life is a disciplined course of study. Is it easier to go to a class or easier to stay at home? Which one's easier? It's easier to stay at home. It's harder to go to that disciplined course of study. Whatever that might be, whatever your field of study might be, that's the more difficult route. But that's what the Christian life is. It's a disciplined course of study. And more than that, God is our Heavenly Father. And we receive discipline from Him as His children. We receive discipline from Him as His children. He loves us. He's our Heavenly Father. So in these circumstances, what is required of you? What's required of us as believers? The answer is is endurance. Endurance is the answer. But why bother? Why bother with the Christian life? If you've come to the Christian life already experiencing a bad previous life, come to the Christian life and say, well, this is really tough. It'd be easier to go back to where I was. Why bother with this new stuff? Why bother with the Christian life? Sometimes we ask that, if not vocally, we ask it in our hearts. We say, why am I wasting my time with all these things, trying to do Bible studies and trying to balance all my responsibilities with church, and I'm facing uh, difficulties at home or facing difficulties from unbelieving family or I'm facing persecution at work because they think I'm crazy. Why bother with all this? That's our question. I believe our passage today is going to answer these questions because almost 2,000 years ago, there was a group of believers not sure exactly how many, we're not sure exactly where, but these were most likely Jewish Christians and addressed in the letter to the Hebrews. That's like we call it, the letter to the Hebrews. Although, if you read it, it's really more a sermon than a letter. It takes about 45 minutes to read through the whole epistle or the whole sermon, and you see how it flows like a sermon, makes a statement, reads a passage of scripture, and then explains it and then applies it. It's very interesting the way it flows. But these believers addressed to in the epistle of Hebrews were facing similar difficulties. They were facing similar difficulties. They were running the risk of returning back to things that they found comfortable, returning back to their old way of Judaism, because there they had they understood it, they understood how it works, they understood how to play the game, and here they come to the Christian life, and it, they find it's difficult, much more difficult than they would realize. 
So all throughout this sermon to the Hebrews, the author is encouraging them not to drift away from the gospel. You have saying, don't, don't neglect the gospel message. Don't drift away. And he uses illustrations all throughout it. Illustrations of a ship drifting away at sea, lost at sea. Don't be like that. Uh, don't trample on the sacrifice of Christ by sinning recklessly. All these warnings about not drifting away from the message of the gospel. And how does it offer a solution? It offers Christ. He's our apostle. He's our great high priest. We to look, we're to look to him. He's the pioneer. He's the finisher of our faith. We're to look to Christ for our endurance. That's, if you could put it in a nutshell, the message of Hebrews. Calling us to endure and persevere by looking to Jesus. And that's what I want to look at today in a particular passage of Hebrews. The call today from this passage is to endure discipline. Endure the discipline of the Lord. If you could come away with one sentence, this is what it would be. Endure the Lord's discipline. If you looked at verse 7 very briefly, most of your Bibles say, it is for discipline that you endure, or perhaps if you are enduring discipline, depending on what version you have. It's best read as a command. It's best read as a command to endure discipline. And maybe some of your versions read that way. It's a command there in verse 7 to endure discipline. That's the heart of the passage. But we've stated our case. Endure the Lord's discipline. Now we're going to answer the question, why endure the Lord's discipline? Why bother with this whole thing? It's so difficult. It almost seems impossible at times. Why even bother with it? And that's what I want to remind you of to this morning. It's something that we all know already. We know that we should persevere. But sometimes we get to those points in life where we figure, why even bother with this anymore? We need to be reminded of things that we already know. Reminded of things we already know. And in this passage, you will see five reasons why you should endure the Lord's discipline. Five reasons to endure it. So let's take a look at the first one. You should endure the Lord's discipline because... Your struggle with sin hasn't killed you yet. The first reason why we should endure it. Look at verse 4. It says, You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. What does that mean? Or what does it not mean? I'll ask that question first. Does it mean if you're struggling with a particular sin and a brother or sister in Christ comes up to you and says, Look, you're not dead yet. You're still breathing, aren't you? Get over it. That's, that's not what it means. That's not what it means. What does it mean? This is an informed statement here. It's an informed statement based on truth. It's making a statement that says, our situation is not nearly as bad as other situations. That's exactly what it's saying. And it fits perfectly in the context of Hebrews, and I'll show you why. Rewind in the context. Look back at chapter 10. Rewind in our context. Chapter 10 Verse 32, we'll read it. By, but remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Does that happen to anyone recently? Maybe so knowing that you have for yourselves, what, a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of what? Endurance, 
so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now what's the contrast? But we are not of those who shrink back to the destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. This is one of the best summaries you can find of the Hebrew situation, what they're facing, seizure of their properties, um, sharing with those who were ill-treated, these kind of things. Persecution. They were facing persecution. Were they dead yet? Not yet. Were those... Are there Were there people who did die on, based on these kind of persecution? Yes. What is? Who knows chapter 11, the hall of faith? Who knows the context of chapter 11? We love that chapter, and rightfully so, but this is the context. It's the contrast showing, hey, this is y'all's situation. Now I want you guys to have faith just like past believers did. This is the context, and it shows Noah, Abraham, Enoch, Samson, Rahab, lots of people who had faith in the midst of difficult times. And we'll read an even larger or an even bigger contrast uh, down in verse 11, verse 30, chapter 11, verse 36. It says, And others experience mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. Okay, that's, that's pretty bad. What else? Verse 37, they were stoned. Okay. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins. I don't think that's a fad yet. And goatskins, definitely not that. Being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Here's the contrast. This is y'all's situation. This was their situation. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. That's what it does mean. Now look ahead in the context. Tim already read it for us. But chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, anyone know why chapter 12 is there? Anyone heard a sermon on chapter 12, 1 through 3? I've heard tons going through college and whatever. I've heard tons of sermons on that. But I rarely heard it connected to the context. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, these past believers who have, can testify to God's grace and testify to how faith can endure these times of difficulty. Since we have those people, we can take encouragement from that. We can lay aside every sin and the weights that entangle us, trip us up in our race, and we can run the race with endurance, the race that's set before us. And we do it by fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He had joy set before him. And because of that, he could endure the cross, endure that hostility, endure Roman execution on a cross. Despising the shame, he didn't stay there, but he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's where he is now. And now it calls us to consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the context where we are today. Saying, this is your situation. This was the old believer situation. Now you take encouragement from that and you run the race with endurance. So this is the middle of a race here. It's a marathon, not a sprint, but a marathon. A long race. And now he says, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. We can endure the Lord's discipline because our struggle with sin has not killed us yet. We're still alive to endure it. That's the point. So he's not trying to be mean or harsh and say, you know, 
get over yourself. That's not what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, you know, be realistic about your situation. Look at it and look how difficult other people's situations were. That's the point. So just as we think about this, do you find yourself exaggerating your own circumstances? I think I've done that before. We are hyperbolic testifiers of how difficult our situations are. Wow. Woe is me. Pity parties. By the way, um, I'll throw a pity party for myself after the service if anyone wants to come. (laughs) Don't think of your situation as harder than everyone else's. Be realistic about it. You may be going through some very difficult times. So the whole point of this passage is not to be mean or rude, but to say, hey, take encouragement. Take encouragement because others have gone through the same thing, if not harder. That's the whole point. Endure the Lord's discipline because your struggle with sin has not killed you yet. And there is a second reason. You should endure the Lord's discipline because he disciplines you out of fatherly love. He disciplines you out of fatherly love. Look down at verses 5 and 6. He says, okay, you've not resisted to death, and you've actually forgotten a very, very important passage of Scripture. You've forgotten about it. Now, remember it. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. He's quoting from Proverbs chapter 3 there. He's quoting from Proverbs chapter 3. He's saying, hey... You guys have the scriptures, and you've forgotten a very important passage. You guys have probably memorized it at some point, but you've forgotten about it. Your difficulties have risen to the point where you're focused on those and not on the truth of scripture. You've forgotten this exhortation. So I'm here to remind you of it. You know it, but I'm here to remind you of it so you can put it into practice. Now, the question I had, at least when I got to this passage the first time, was what is discipline? What is discipline? That's a natural question because we say, well... Okay, does this mean punishment, or is this a spanking, or what is this? Back in Greek culture, this word is actually, if Adam's around, paideia. That's the school he teaches at. And it had an old background in education, the education system, training, teaching, tutoring. That's what the word is. And often carried out by household slaves in Greek and Roman culture. Now, you can see that idea in our passage today. But there is something even deeper, something more crucial, and that is the context of what? Proverbs. The context of the book of Proverbs. And that's what he's implying here. And by the way, if any of you see Andy Stanley, you can tell him that this is an exposition of Proverbs 3. He's reading it. He's explaining it. He's applying it. This is what he's doing with Proverbs chapter 3. What is the context of Proverbs? Over and over again. We already heard from chapter 1 this morning. It's the discipline and instruction of a father and the wisdom of the mother. These parent, this parental instruction, this parental training. Now, do you see punishment in the book of Proverbs? Sure. You see, you see correction for wrongdoing. Do you see loving training, too, as well? Yeah, we see that, too. So that's the idea here. That's the idea. It's God's loving, attentive, Fatherly training and correction. It's God's loving, it's attentive, it's fatherly training and correction. That's what this word discipline here means. So you're enrolled in God's school. This isn't just any school, this is God's school. And you're under his discipline course of study. As you face the Lord's discipline, 
this passage says you can have two negative responses. What are they? You can have two negative responses. You want to avoid these. First one is you can be thick-skulled. Don't be thick-skulled. Don't be hard-headed. It says do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Why would we disregard the Lord's discipline? It doesn't make any sense. It's something he's offering us. Why would we reject it? Well, go back to the book of Proverbs again. Why did people reject wisdom in the book of Proverbs? What were they chasing after? Relaxation, laziness. They were chasing after wealth. They were chasing after loose women. Say, wow, this is a whole lot better than what you guys have to offer. I'm going to reject this discipline. I'm going to do what I want. Don't be thick-skulled. Don't be hard-headed. We do not want to respond that way to the Lord's discipline. Often we do that because we think we know better than God. Think, okay, I got my own program going here. This is not time for me to be disciplined. Okay, you might think I need to be, but I got my things, my ducks in a row. I'm good. That's that's a terrible response. The next uh, poor response we could have would be to be too thin-skinned. Don't be thick-skulled. Don't be too thin-skinned either. It says, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Don't be thin-skinned. Don't just, okay, I gotta give up. <laughs> you face the Lord's discipline, okay, throw in the towel and you're done. Just going to not try anymore. That's the idea. So first one, you're just being plain old stubborn. The second one, you're just plain old wimpy. That's the idea. So don't respond either way. Don't respond either way. So how do you respond the right way? We can re- respond the right way when we understand that, when we can understand God's fatherly perspective. We can respond the right way to God's discipline when we understand that it's his fatherly perspective. Let's read verse 6 again. It says, Those upon whom God's insatiable wrath abides, he disciplines for the sheer enjoyment of seeing them writhe in pain. Is that what your version says? For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He's doing this out of fatherly love. We have a harder time understanding this from our standpoint because... Sometimes we can get angry with our children, impatient, and be irrational with them. God's not that way. He's patient. He's loving. He does what it takes to put us back on the right path. He doesn't fly off the handle with us. It's loving. He's always doing it out of love for his own, for his children. That's the idea here. That's how we respond. We have to remember, okay, I'm being disciplined. He's doing it out of his fatherly love. He's doing it out of his fatherly love. We also have to look at, briefly, the difference between God's legal punishment and his fatherly correction. Because this is not talking about legal punishment for sin. Anyone know what I mean when I say legal punishment for sin? That's not pretty. That's what we all deserve, apart from Christ. God's legal punishment, death and hell forever. We sinned, even if it was only once, which if someone's done that, I would like to meet you, but... Even one sin, even one breaking of the commandment deserves God's legal punishment. Instant death. That's what we deserve. That's not what the context is here. We know that from Hebrews because it's made such effort to show that Christ has made this once for all sacrifice for sin. He's made it once for all. 10.14, for by one offering is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One offering. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt. How would you feel if your financial debt were cleared right now? 
What about your sin debt? Canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's the point. This is his legal acquittal of us. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he give, nor will he keep his anger forever. Listen to this, verse 10, Psalm 103. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so far, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Just, and listen to this word, very interesting that he would, the, the Psalms would include this word, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. This is the compassion of a father. This is why I love the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. It's, I have a hard time figuring out what my favorite hymn is, but that's one of them. It says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. If you're a believer, that's your situation. God has removed your sins so far from you that you can never reach them back. This is the point. Will we struggle with it? Yes. But in terms of God's program of salvation, in terms of his legal, his courtroom, if you could say, his justice, you are declared not guilty. Your sins are paid for if you're a believer in Christ. So the context here is not this legal punishment for sin, but discipline as a father. If you're a true follower of Christ, God will give you this fatherly correction. It's not double payment, by the way. It's not, okay, I'm suffering, you know, I'm being disciplined for stupid things I've done. Therefore, it's, okay, Christ paid for my sins, and I'm going to pay for them a little bit more. That's not how it works either. That's not how God works. If we do something stupid, he's going to put us back on the path, if we're his children. That's the point. Maybe we didn't do something stupid, and he's still training us. That's why it could be corrective and formative discipline, corrective and formative training. If there were a one-to-one correspondence between our sin and punishment, we, none of us would be in this room right now. We'd all be dead. This is his correction, his training of us as our father. He does it out of love. Who is better, Saul or David? Yeah, David was a man after God's own heart, but he didn't sin, right? Saul was, okay, pretty bad guy. Started out good, but forgot the Lord. Who did God choose? He chose David to be the lasting, his lasting kingdom through whom the Christ would come. That's who he chose. If you were to read 2 Samuel 7, we don't have to turn there now, but he talks... It talks about God's choosing David and being a father to him and correcting him when he needs to, not letting him go. Even though he would do some very, very stupid things in his lifetime, God would not let him go, and he would bring the Christ through his line. And that's how God is with us. We're going to do stupid things, and God's going to correct us, but if we're his true children, he's not going to let us go. He's going to correct us and train us out of his love. So how do you view God's discipline? Have you ever been disciplined by the Lord? We could all raise our hand to that. How do you view it? Do you want to get thick skull and be stubborn about it or get thin-skinned and reject it? Or do you say, he's doing this because he's mad at me? 
God isn't mad at you if you're in Christ. He's not. He does it because He loves us. Keep that view of God's discipline. We can endure it. We can truly endure the Lord's discipline when we keep that perspective, when we see that God is disciplining us out of His love. That's another reason why we can truly endure it. Say, okay, this is really tough right now. It's, it's impossible on my own. But by your grace, I'm going to endure it because I know you're doing it for a reason. You're doing this out of love as my Heavenly Father. Take encouragement from this. So the Lord's discipline is His loving, attentive, fatherly training and correction. Keep this in mind. He does this out of love, but does it stop here? Is this where the passage stops? We've had a lot of encouragement. We could technically go home, but it tells us more. Some more good news, actually. Some more good news. So the third reason why we can endure the Lord's discipline is because He disciplines us. His discipline reassures us that we're His children. His discipline reassures us that we are His child. You can know when He disciplines you that you're His child. So there's, there's two matters at stake here in verse 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you endure. And we already said that. Read this as a command. So endure discipline. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? There's the question for us. So we could say that it's axiomatic that children receive discipline from their fathers. True or false? True. Children receive discipline from their fathers. This is an extremely brilliant rhetorical question he's asking here. A brilliant one. Okay, because you say, have you seen children not disciplined by their father? Okay, yes. I've seen plenty of children not disciplined by their father. Has anyone been shopping this week? (laughs) And see the children pounding on the floor? And no one doing anything about it? I'm not saying that as Christians we're going to have perfect children, but it's our response is what I'm talking about. I'm not an expert on fatherhood. So you could say, to answer this question, well, as a rule, you know, kids get disciplined by their fathers. But now I've seen some kids who are not disciplined. So that leads to the next thing. So what kind of son doesn't receive discipline? What kind of son is out there that does not receive fatherly discipline? Because we've seen it, right? Verse 8 answers it. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are what? Illegitimate children and not sons. That's the kind of son that does not receive a fatherly discipline. That's the kind of son, illegitimate children. What's illegitimate mean? Back in old biblical culture, it's just pretty much how we have it here, being born out of wedlock. Or in that culture, from a concubine, taking maybe a slave slave woman and, and having a child through her. And you can think of examples in the Bible of that. And that person would therefore be without legal status or rights. That illegitimate child. Someone neglected someone who didn't receive the fatherly discipline that was necessary. So here we go. Who's without it? Illegitimate children, not sons. So some application here for us as as parents. Are there ways that we do this? Ways that we don't discipline our children the way we should? Okay, we can, can, uh, you know, be hard on our culture for a minute. Have you ever seen people ignore behavior? Again, a few of you have been shopping this week. The old turn the back and let the kid do whatever he wants. Who's seen that? Okay. I, I had this thought, okay, what if I look this up? Because there has to be someone telling people to do this. I don't think it's just a natural thing, although it is. 
but there has to be some kind of literature out there. So I looked it up on the Internet, and there's a, some professional advice from an actual healthcare agency that tells you how to ignore your child. This is not a lie. And they give a definition. Ignoring behavior is simply pretending that the behavior is not occurring. Okay? This is real advice. The parent does not look at, talk to, or, or respond to the child until the inappropriate behavior ends. If you didn't know how to ignore your child before, this is how you do it. They offer three basic guidelines for ignoring your children. Number one, give the child no recognition when exhibiting the behavior. Number two, be consistent with your approach. Don't you dare look back. Number three, recognize the child as soon as the unacceptable behavior stops. Okay. Points to remember. Number one, ignoring is difficult. You're going to be tempted to turn back. Number two, ignoring does not always render immediate results. You've got to be patient. Don't turn back. Number three, other adults and children in the family may continue to recognize that behavior and jeopardize your technique. Watch out for that. Do not let anyone interfere with your ignoring of behavior. So we picked on our culture for a little bit, right? How do we do it, though, as Christians? How do we do it? Okay, it might not be in the store when our kid's throwing a temper tantrum, but we might do it in the home when no one's watching. We are so involved in our frivolous activities, whatever they might be. I'm not going to call any one activity because some people struggle with things over another. But I'm willing to bet that each and every one of you is involved in frivolous activities. I could include myself in that. To the neglect of our children, we're ignoring them and not giving them the discipline, the training that they need. Or we say, okay, well, I, I've erased all frivolous activities, but I'm involved in important duties, so therefore I cannot be around. And I'm speaking to myself here. That's how we are derelict parents. We can involve ourselves in so many things that are unnecessary, or we can say that things that we're doing are so important that we don't have time to give our children the correction and training that they need. That's precisely how we do it as Christians. So examine your own hearts in this regard. So God's discipline, however, God's discipline is how he shows us that we are his true children. Anyone want to be an illegitimate child and got from God's perspective? That seems to be the scariest place to be, an illegitimate child in God, and from God's perspective. And the encouragement here, another reason to endure the Lord's discipline, his discipline, his discipline shows us that we are his children. His discipline comes along and says, you are my child. I have chosen you. You belong to me. I'm not going to let you go, even if you do something stupid. That's the point. It reassures us that we're his children. Therefore, you can endure this discipline that we're receiving from the hand of God. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, there was a, a man who interacted him, with him once. Spurgeon was very sick. Does anyone know that Spurgeon was often sick and very depressed, especially toward the end of his life? We think of him as the great preacher, and he was a great preacher, but he was often sick, often had to make trips um, away from his church to recover and was often extremely depressed. You've had people in your life like this, but some guy walks up to him at one of those times and says, Ah, see, those whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Come on. And Spurgeon responded like he always does. He said, If the Lord were to grind me to powder, I would accept it as his, at his hands so that I might have his love. That's how he responded. I wish I could respond like that. 
to situations. I never think about that until maybe a month later. <laughs> That's how we were to respond. And he also said in that statement, Spurgeon, he said he wept over that guy. Someone who thought so little of the discipline of the Lord and said, I'd rather have something else, rather do my own thing. We should endure the Lord's discipline because it tells us that we're his children. It's a sign that he cares for us. Think about the opposite. The absence of his discipline may mean that he's leaving you to your own devices. Where do you see that in Scripture? Romans 1. That seems to be the greatest judgment, letting you go further and further and further into your sin, for it eats you alive. That's not how I want to be. I want to be known as his child. Receive that fatherly instruction, even though it hurts, even though it might be painful at the time. Romans 1 talks about that bitter, bitter judgment. Endure it because it shows that we're his children. The fourth reason, fourth reason why you should endure the Lord's discipline is because it produces the results he desires. His discipline produces the results he desires. It keeps getting more and more encouraging. It hasn't removed the difficulty. It still shows that this is difficult stuff. But it's showing us encouragement in the middle of the difficulty. There are three, these three verses, verses 9 through 11, show this contrast and comparison between the human view of discipline and God's perspective on discipline. So it's like saying, okay, on the one hand, we think this, but on the other hand, this is what God intends, or this is how God views it. So these three verses, each of them shows a different contrast. And we'll look at that briefly here. It's producing sanctification, ultimately. But look at verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? And if you read this literally, or if you have the MacArthur Study Bible, you'll have the note that says it's literally fathers of the flesh, contrasted by the Father of the spirits, Father of our spirits. So here's a contrast. Let's look at it briefly. So we had earthly fathers to discipline us. What did that produce? Respect. As you grow older, you say, wow, that was really painful at the time. But hey, Dad, thanks. Thank you for the way you disciplined me. Thank you for the way you corrected me because I was going to be in a big trouble by the time I got to this age. So it's, it's a respect that's involved there. And that's legitimate. And that's going to be a legitimate goal for us to discipline our children so we can have that kind of relationship whenever they get older. And I'm grateful for that kind of relationship I have with my dad. Because by God's grace, I think he handled this passage in the way it, it tells us to. But it doesn't stop right there. So that, that's a, a category. We view it this way. Earthly fathers discipline us. We have respect for them. Awesome. But shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? So it's arguing from the lesser to the greater. So God's discipline produces life. It produces life. And in the context of Hebrews, does life mean you're going to live till you're 88? Well, you might be. You might die early. It's talking about eternal life. It's talking about life in God's kingdom. You're going to have that life that He wants to offer us, eternal life. God's discipline is producing that in our lives now. That's one of the results that He desires. So He's not doing it. Okay, I love you, therefore I'm going to discipline you for no reason. Or, yes, my discipline shows you they're my child. But it's more than that. It's producing something in us. It's sanctifying us. This discipline is training us and producing real effects. It's producing life. 
Look at verse 10. God's discipline produces holiness. It produces holiness. For they, the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. So it produces life. It produces holiness. And look at the contrast. They disciplined us for how long? A short time, it says. And how they do it? Well, according to their best judgment. They might not have made the right choices all the time, but you know, according to the best of their ability, they disciplined us. Or our fathers and mothers, they've disciplined us. And they might have had a good aim in that. But as humans, things are tainted, and we don't know exactly what's going on, and we don't know how to discipline always as we ought. Who knows exactly when to discipline your child? It's, that's a hard category, something I'm trying to figure out right now. Sometimes it's like, okay, I'm not really sure how to respond to this, but you do your best. But is God's discipline, is he not quite sure how to handle us? He knows exactly how to handle us. He knows precisely how to handle us. And he does it for what? So that uh, to make you angry or to get you upset or to make it hard for you? No, he disciplines us for our good. And more particularly so that we can share in his holiness. So we can share in his holiness. So it produces life. It produces holiness. And it also produces righteousness. It produces righteousness. All discipline, verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, listen to that word trained, those who have been trained by it afterwards, okay, not, not immediately, but afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Fruit is one of my favorite words in the Bible. Okay, it's not exactly here thinking, it's, it's talking about a harvest, it's talking about produce, something that you've planted and that's been watered, something that's been taken care of. It grows up and it produces something that is, is beneficial. Maybe it's wheat. Maybe it's literal fruit from a tree. These kind of things. Something that is worked hard on and it produces. That's what it's talking about here. It's going to yield the product of righteousness, the produce of righteousness. So here's the contrast. All discipline for the moment, it seems to be pretty painful. It seems to be pretty painful, and it might seem tumultuous. It might seem difficult. It might seem like there's a ton of things going on, and you don't, might not be experiencing much peace. But it says to those who have been trained by it, trained by this discipline, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Turn to Romans 5 briefly. Some other testimonies from Scripture on how Endurance produces things, produces desired benefits. Romans 5.3, and not only this, but we also get really upset in our tribulations and moan and groan. No, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope doesn't leave you anywhere, right? It does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our spirits through the Holy Spirit who, has, who was given to us. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected 
by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So that's our heavenly perspective, our future perspective. In this you greatly rejoice. Yes, we do rejoice in that. We're looking forward to that. Even though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by trials. So that, and here's the reason, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our trials, our tribulations are producing the kind of desire, the kind of results that God wants. It's producing in a sanctification. This is why he's doing this. We can endure the Lord's discipline. We must endure the Lord's discipline because it is producing what God desires in our lives. If you cut if you try to cut God's discipline short, then you're trying to cut off these benefits that God's working in your lives. That's what you're attempting to do in essence. That doesn't make any sense. Endure it. Because he's working in you what he desires. He's trying. He's not trying. He is sanctifying you if you are his true child. So that's the fourth reason. Endure it because it produces the results that he desires. And briefly, number five. The fifth reason why you should endure the Lord's discipline is because the Lord offers you strength and encouragement to keep going. We talked about metaphors in this passage. started with the race in verses 1 through 3, right? And then it moved to a metaphor of fatherly correction and training. Verses 12 through 13, return back to the race metaphor. Back to the race metaphor. So the race is still going, in other words. The race is still happening. It's not over yet. And the Lord is offering us strength and encouragement to keep going. Therefore, we should endure his discipline. He offers us strength to finish the race. Verse 12, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Okay, this is not a useless command. He's saying, okay, you guys are battered enough, and just go ahead and do this. Just go get strengthened. Go warm, you'll be warmed and filled. No, that's, that's not the idea. It's the idea of, okay, look at what I just told you. Look at all the encouragement I just offered you. Therefore, have strength to finish the race well. Based on everything you've already heard me say, based on the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons in Proverbs chapter 3, take encouragement from this and gain strength from these truths. That's what he's telling us. So it's not a useless command here. And he also says to take appropriate measures for healing to happen. Verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet. And the making of straight paths is seen throughout Proverbs as right living. So that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And again, has the race stopped? You're injured. It hurts. But has the race stopped? It hasn't stopped. It keeps going. That's why he says make straight paths for your feet. Do what it takes for healing to take place as best you can while you're running the race. There was a lady at camp last week who uh, dislocated her shoulder. One of the, maybe the second day, I believe, of camp. Did she leave camp? She was basically stuck there. <laughs> so she set a straight path for her arm by putting it in a sling and holding it there all the rest of the week. But she had to keep running the race. She had to keep going. She had to keep ministering to the campers. She couldn't stop. So that's the illustration here. You're, you're not getting out of it yet. You're still running the race, but make straight paths for your feet so that healing can happen. And this is encouraging stuff. So again, it's based on truth that we already learned. That's what these commands are based on. So really, in this passage, we've seen him introduce the passage. He read a passage from Proverbs chapter 3. He explained it. Now he's applying it here. He's applying it here. He's saying, gain strength from what I've told you. Take encouragement and keep going. Don't get weary. We're not talking about physical feet here, but getting weary in your soul. 
gain strength from what the Lord offers you. So as we wrap up, there's a few things that we touched on, but I want to emphasize them more now as we take this passage away, take this home with us. Please avoid pride. Don't go out saying, okay, I'm not so immature that I really need the Lord's discipline. Say, okay, I'm pretty strong, Lord. I've been a believer for 20 years or whatever. I'm, I've, I don't need this anymore. We never outgrow the need for the Lord's discipline. You never outgrow that need. Does the type of correction differ between stages in the Christian life? Sure. The type of We see this in our uh, earthly relationships. Our toddlers need different correction than our teenagers do. But do we ever outgrow the need for the Lord's discipline? The answer to that is definitely no. We never outgrow it. So don't be so prideful to say, I don't need it anymore. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Beware of superstition. Any of you superstitious? Karma, any of that? You at least see it at the workplace. Here, I've heard that word all the time now. Oh, karma's coming back. Oh, I did such and such. Karma. Or, oh man, you better watch your back now. You did that. Oh no, I said, you know, I said a curse word. The Lord's going to uh, give me a flat tire on the way home. Are we superstitious? Better watch my back kind of mentality. Calvin and his institutes said, uh, the most audacious despisers of God are most easily disturbed, trembling at the sound of a falling leaf. They're so ungodly, so wicked, that they're so afraid that the Lord's going to strike them down or something bad's going to happen to them. They call it karma. They don't call it the Lord's discipline or the Lord's judgment. They call it karma. They call it superstition, whatever. Please avoid that. And don't run into that trap as Christians either. Don't say, okay, well, I sinned, therefore I'm better. I'm waiting for it now. You know, Lord, when are you going to do it? That's not, that's not what the passage is talking about. It's not telling us to do that. It's out of love. And that's what I really want you to take home with this. Broken homes. And I don't say this lightly because I came out of a home that was not broken. Most of the people I grew up with did come from broken homes. And most of my campers came from broken homes from this past week. I had a camper whose parents just, their dad walked out. And now he's growing older as a teenager. He doesn't have that kind of instruction. One camper said he never met his father. And I've known countless people who have been in that exact same situation. People who are illegitimate children from an earthly standpoint. And this brings extreme pain. And this is the norm now. It's a lot rarer to see homes that are not broken. If you're in God's family, that home is not broken. It's not broken. It never will be broken. So it's going to be painful here from an earthly standpoint. It's painful, maybe in your circumstance at home. And I know a lot of you, and it is painful. But this is the encouragement of the scriptures. God's home is not broken. He's your heavenly father. He's disciplining you out of love, and he's not going to let you go. He knows your every step. He knows your every thought. So I don't say that lightly. And be encouraging to others. So don't be prideful. Don't be superstitious. Take encouragement that God's home is not broken. And encourage others. Once you get through this passage and take encouragement from it and start applying it, start looking outside of yourself and say other people's, other people who are going through difficult situations and encourage them. Encourage those people. Say, hey, your, your struggle against sin has not killed you yet. 
God is disciplining you out of love. His discipline is assuring you that you're his child. And you can take true encouragement from this. You can be strengthened. It's producing the results that he desires in your life. Please be encouraged by this. Look outside of yourself and encourage other people. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Be encouraging to others. And again, please, don't outgrow the need for the Lord's discipline. He's disciplining us out of his love. Let's pray. Father, we do ask you that we would understand this passage and that we would apply it. This week, that it would equip us for our lives. We face these difficulties everywhere we are, at work, at home, in our activities, wherever we might be, Lord. This is something that we're always, uh, it's always on our mind, Lord. Um, you are Heavenly Father, Lord, and you are, you are always training us. You're always putting us back on the path if we are your true children. I pray, Father, that if there are people in here who are not your children, I pray that you would save them. I pray that you would rescue them out of the domain of darkness and transfer them to the kingdom of your beloved Son. And I pray that we would not be too stubborn or too wimpy to uh, endure your discipline, but I pray that we would do it keeping the proper perspective. I pray that we'd love you more. I ask us in Christ's name. Amen.